Welcome to the Brookie and Berger podcast and uh, welcome to Darren Burgess up in sunny uh, Maruchador. How are things up there, Darren? Yeah, not too bad, Doc. Yeah, how's Melbourne treating you? Oh, Melbourne's just a load of fun at the moment. It's just uh, a ball of laughs, you know. It's cramped my, uh, my t- nighttime activities, you know. We're under curfew, <laughs> so... I can't go out to all my usual nightclubs. And, uh, so I'm, I'm just going to say, uh, Doc, anyway. some people look better in masks. I'll just leave that there. <laughs> uh, thanks for your support in this uh, trying time, you know, with all the mental health issues associated with lockdown, and uh, really appreciate that. Anyway, um, that, was the, uh, that was the Alicia Keys version of You'll Never Walk Alone, which she recorded after Hurricane Katrina in 2010. And... Uh, she was the artist chosen by our guest. Maybe you'd like to uh, introduce the great man, Darren. Yeah, it's an absolute pleasure to have uh, someone I've uh, worked closely with over the last 12 months, uh, David Reig. And Riggs, welcome to the uh, Brookie and Burjo podcast. Burjo, Brookie, thank you very much for having me. It's uh, quite an honour after the lineup you've had, so obviously you needed a down week in the uh, ratings. So it's quite a reset. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, we got uh, um, no one else could come this week. Yeah, <laughs> As you know, with periodisation yeah. rigs, you you often need a recovery week, and this is ours. Yeah. So um, that's yeah, that's what I thought. I thought, look, may as well help out and come on to one, and then reload for the next week. You've probably got the Queen of England or someone like that yeah. coming on. So <laughs> exactly. Reset, reset no. for the big guests. Very, very uh, appropriate that, that you're on, mate. And, and one of the great things about uh, David that is that not many people know or know about him and his sort of journey because he tends to be a bit quiet on the, uh, on the social media front and uh, in the sort of sports science world. So we'll, we'll delve into that a little bit later. But, Dave, if you can just uh, tell everybody where you've been the last few years and, and how you got to, to where you are now. Yeah, so obviously currently working with Melbourne Football Club and the great man. Um, And then previous to that, I was over in America for five years uh, and got a great experience working in in two of their professional sports over there in baseball and NFL, and both very different in environment and then also demands. Um, I worked with the New York Mets for one year and then was with um, the Miami Dolphins for four years. Prior to that... um, I was a school teacher and also kind of worked part-time with uh, at Port Adelaide, basically picking up socks and redoing um, Gatorade cups and uh, doing urine tests with Rondo and learning very quickly that you don't actually close the lid on the refractometer close to the eye, otherwise you get pee all over your face. So um, <laughs> learned some pretty good lessons there and, 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 yeah, really kind of tried to build my way into the career, which... I've got at the moment and hopefully can continue to have for, you know, the next foreseeable future, really. It is it is an interesting – if we go back to the Port Adelaide days, um, mm-hmm. Reeves, had you finished uni and gone straight into that? No, so I was – it started in, I think, year 10 because the old man got a job as a, a basic Wally giver-outer um, and he was – kind of utility steward there. So they, it started at the inception. So we would go down and just help stock, you know, the eskies and fill up the cups and all that type of stuff. And then 
when we learn a little bit more about what we want to do in exercise science, it was a great opportunity, um, you know, to really kind of ask questions of yourself and Rondo and Stu. Yep. I remember sitting down with Stu one day and he was showing me spark lines on Excel and all this type of stuff. And it's kind of funny. It, it was a lot of the skills you didn't necessarily get through university purely because it's not the environment where you can get um, the exposure to it. You can be told, but it's very different from being told and listening to a lecturer do it and then actually being involved and amongst it. And I suppose sometimes I use it. It's, it's the closest thing to an internship that you could get in Australian sport, and it was fantastic because you already understood the time constraints that like the performance department would put under, the players would put under, and you understood how a football club operated on game day. Because it really was you, uh, like the most glamorous and I guess sports science-y um, part of that job was analysing the urine. The rest of it really was picking up crap yeah. around the dressing room and, um, you know, having cups of Gatorade thrown at you when guys were angry about being taken <laughs> off, you know, and things like that, wasn't it? Yeah. That, that really was yep. your role. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and like... You were scared shitless, oh, sorry, scared witless of uh, Mark Williams because, like, yes. you saw, you know, and, and I got told the greatest thing by one of the guys. He goes, you don't want to be holding up the wall, so standing there doing nothing. You almost want to merge into the wall and then come out and do something. And, and that's what it felt like, you, you know, and it, that also provided a great way of just watching. You know, you had a yes. look at, you know, I remember Boki getting in the ice baths before a game. So that made me go, okay, well, how come he would do that? Um, you know, having a look at warm-ups. I initially remember the original blue phone rollers when they were coming out and then learning about them. So it was the exposure to the things that may not necessarily get a lot of media or a lot of exposure in social media and things like that that made me ask questions about, okay, why is that being done too? And, you know, you all, and the staff there were also great. Like, if you had a question, I could go up and ask. I had to go up at the right time. But, you know, like, like I said, Stu showing me spark lines and talking about what he was looking at was, you know, that first real exposure where I was lucky. But other than that, it was cleaning up, picking up dirty jumpers, sweaty socks, underwear, cleaning out lockers. Yeah, it was, you know, but you wanted to do it. Yeah, nice. And, and I guess... Um... Uh, before we get into your your uh, sort of journey through the US, what was it that made yeah. you want to get into this field? Um, I think because when you're an average sportsman and <laughs> you realise that you're not going to be anything special, you can go down either one of two routes. I think steroids is one option and then try to really hope <laughs> that gets you on the line. Or, or the other option is trying to fails for you. Balls and then, <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, I, apparently I didn't estrogen block, so uh, <laughs> the old man, man boobs got out of control. Um, but, you know, the other option is trying to understand why maybe you weren't necessarily as good as you could have been or was there something different you could have done and then... You know, that initial question leads you down to the world of the different kind of sciences that are within performance. And, you know, I just found it fascinating. And it's funny, I wasn't a very good student at school, but as soon as I found performance and the way that science could relate to performance, I started to love it. So it was probably trying to answer questions as to how you could improve or, you know, what, what you could do to 
to better yourself and and then I think also I always wanted to be a teacher as well so I enjoyed working with people so it kind of made sense that I could marry those two things together. Yeah, that, that, that certainly comes across. Um, if I can uh, throw in a comment, um, we've we've had a couple of losses here recently with the demons and life in a in a hub um, can be quite tough um, uh, when you lose because you're surrounded by each other twenty four seven, and they were really important losses. And uh, Dave's ability, my my go to, because I can be a bit grumpy at times. Um, my go to with warm ups and things like that is to go to Dave because his ability to be up and um, positive and make the the playing group laugh during warm ups is, is and and recovery and things like that is is outstanding. So it's um, uh, it, the real positive attitude. I think uh, one of the things that I learnt uh, through using psychology or a psychologist, I should say is to try and um, get a different range of people in your staff and use their strengths to the advantage of the team. And so there's no point me doing recovery after a loss because I'm just as shitty as the players, whereas uh, Dave has that ability to to get the guys up. Is that just through your enjoyment of working with people? Is that through your teaching background? Yeah, or? yeah I, you know, I think it also probably – it's kind of funny. I think you're always – affected by previous experiences in your life and you know like high school wasn't a lot of fun for me um so I, th I think it stems from that too like you know I enjoy working with people but there was a lot of the time where it was you know pretty uh, like yeah I had hard experiences in high school and now I'm just like all right look that's hard but you know you want to have fun I think it revolves around from the way of you and it's getting quite deep. So I apologize for that, but you know, it's okay. you a short period of time. So you may as well enjoy what you're doing. Um, and I understand that there's difficulties within that and you've got to be respectful of that. Like you have lost a game and it could be crucial to your season, but it's also important to still find some humor in those small, small parts. So I think it stems from having, you know, not as much enjoyment as other people did in high school. And then also, you know, that connection with people. You don't like seeing people being sad. You know, you want to make sure that everyone's okay and happy and, once again, respectful of there are times where people won't be and that's fine. But, yeah, I think it's important to always try to be positive for people. Um, and I've learnt a lot of the time that sometimes if you paint yourself as the court jester, that's what people think you are too. So <laughs> it's a, it's a double-edged sword, but, it's um, yeah, I, I just think it comes back to trying to help and, be positive, I think, yeah. And if we go to to your American experience, just briefly, how mm -hmm. did that come about? And, and talk to us about uh, your experience in baseball, firstly. Yeah, so with America, um, my brother Mike was working for Catapult. And once again, it was a great opportunity for me to kind of just ride his coattail. So whatever he was doing, whatever, you know, he was up to. So he was one of their first sports scientists and whatever he was doing with the units or trying to figure out or look at, I would normally go and wear the unit or help out and hit start, stop on the computer and things like that. So it was a great initial exposure to, you know, the science that was really starting to be pushed upon the teams in, in GPS units. And what happened then is he moved over to America and, and met a lot of people. And while he was over there, um, some people were asking about whether they knew anybody who was willing and able to come over so that was with Dave Poloka, who was with the Miami Dolphins. Mm -hmm. 
And Michael said, yeah, there's a list of five guys. Here they are. And um, Dave reached out and interviewed all of us. And it was a long process. It was, I think it started in the November of 2013 and finally got hired in the March of 2014. So it was an extremely long process. But um, once I got over there, it was it was fantastic. And then obviously after working in for the years in Miami, um, the New York Mets called and said that they were looking to create a new high-performance department with, uh, led by Jim Cavallini um, and went over there and started working in baseball, which was one of the best and worst experiences, I'd have to say, in my life purely from the environment that baseball's in. And, and from that, there's a lot of things that are ingrained within baseball. So when you have a look at the history and the way that it's almost kind of interwoven in the fabric of America's summer. It's mm. called America's pastime. That a lot of these notions about performance, uh, recovery, um, training, all of these things are kind of thrown out the window because of the, the beauty that comes with it being America's pastime. And the players almost kind of live up to that notion. So you have the best pitchers in the world who are earning guaranteed contracts that, that may pay them $200 million over the next six years, and you'll go up to them and go, hey, look, I need you to fill out this wellness questionnaire. And they go, nah. And you're like, well, <laughs> hang on, can you, can you fill out the wellness questionnaire? It's just a simple four questions, you know, how are you doing? We just need to make sure we're checking in. And they're like, nah, nah, not going to do it. Um, so... You know, what was your was... what was your reaction when when that happened? One of the things, if I really briefly jump on my soapbox, Dave, and you can either <laughs> join me or not, if you agree. Uh, everybody, every lecture, every podcast you listen to, oh, you must do wellness, you must do wellness, you must do wellness. That's you know, RPEs are the be all and end all, and uh, uh, yeah, they'll tell you this and that. They cover everything, objective, subjective. So you must do RPEs. But you're in that situation where you've got a a million dollar athlete just saying, no, nah, not interested. As good a bloke as you are, and as <laughs> you know, no doubt you would have made it funny. And uh, how, what was your reaction when when these players just say no? How did you get around? Initially, them? initially you're flawed. Initially, you're legitimately like you're, you're taken aback because you've come from Australia where if someone asks you to do something, normally the polite thing is to go, no worries, and you do it. And then in the NFL, there was an initial kind of pushback against doing anything, but that was more out of fear from what it could lead to their contracts. So the huge difference between NFL and MLB is that NFL don't have guaranteed contracts. So they are really quite protective of the information that they're providing that can then be used against them. Whereas baseball, on the other hand, their contracts are fully guaranteed. So I was floored because really when I made the shift from NFL to MLB, I thought this is going to be great. I've got players who aren't necessarily in fear about what could be used against them. And then the first day I've got the best pitcher for the New York Mets going, no. Nah. No. Um, and, and, of course, internally, you go, oh, my God, but 
externally, you're right. You've got to make a joke about it. You're like, oh, no worries. I'll go and F myself in the corner and walk away. And I think I think that also was helpful in the, using the humour um, helped them kind of see that I wasn't there to trick them or to do any kind of smoke and mirrors type of stuff. It was genuinely we were trying to build something up to it. Um, and And so after that, I would go and have a conversation and say, look, you know, do you understand why we're doing it? And even then with some of them, they'd be like, yeah, I understand and I can see why you do it, but no. Um, so, yeah, like everyone says they're doing wellness questionnaires and everyone comes on podcasts and say we're doing all these wonderful things, but, but you know, I think 85% of the time you've got athletes who are doing it and then the other 15%, you know, you've got a complete shambles and, you, and you're trying to, navigate your way about getting them from resistant to compliant. Um, and I think, you know, podcasts are great. You learn a lot, but they're also um, kind of misleading in the way that the industry can work and operate. And so how did you um, actually perform your job without some of that information? Because I imagine a lot of that information was hard to collect in an environment yeah. like baseball. So how did you perform the job of a sports scientist to monitor their loads and, and have an impact? And and it's okay, I've been in plenty of jobs where I've had no impact whatsoever. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, how how did you perform that without that information? Yeah, so it was trying to identify where you could get the good information from. So the great thing about baseball is because it's so um, analytic-based that most things are being measured. So there's... Uh, technology out there called TrackMan, which basically assesses pitches, spin rate, velocity, um, angle of release, horizontal release. So all of these metrics are being released for every pitch. So what I started looking at there was, okay, if we can't get any subjective feedback from the player, that's fine. They have very good relationships with the physios um, and the athletic trainers. So they could be the reference point to get that kind of um, subjective information that we're getting from the players. So how they're feeling, are there any niggles, are there any pain, is there something that we need to be aware of? And then tried to be a little bit more objective with the data that I was collecting. So using TrackMan. So one of the first things that we look with with our um, pitching staff, and, and that's your, your pitching group, um, your starters normally are the guys who can throw four to five different pitches. So historically I got all of the TrackMan information and started to make norms for those players across each inning and across each pitch. So what we could start to look at is, you know, for example, Tommy John's a huge issue. And a lot of the time I think it's from the fact that the, the players don't necessarily decelerate the pitch once they've thrown it. So there's a fatigue in the mechanic somewhere so what we would actually do was start looking at the velocity because that is a marker of, okay, is their four-seam fastball doing what it should do? But then we would have a look at the height release of their arm and also the horizontal release of their arm and create an angle of release and try to establish at what point there was a fatigue but then also make sure that that related to when they were being hit because if you've got a pitcher who's fatiguing but he's still not being hit, Yes, there's some concern about he could get injured and 
you know, you do have to do the right thing by that. But then also if you can give that information to the pitching coach and he can be like, right, how are you feeling? What are you doing? And then he can go out and speak to the pitcher. He's feeling fine and he's not being hit and he hasn't had a huge amount of throw volume. Well, then, you know, push on. So we started collecting track man. We started having to look at spin rates in track man as well. So on a curveball, we could see if that spin rate was going, it means they weren't finishing their pitch off. Um, we had a look at just throws throughout the week. So pitchers will traditionally always have their main pitch. They'll have a day off. And then leading into their next um, start, which is normally five to six days, they'll have an up, they'll have a, like a bullpen throw, and then off the mound, and then they'll start again. So we just monitor how many throws yeah. they're doing. Um, and then we started using the force frame to measure different positions of their arm in internal and external ro uh, rotation and then also um, having a look at long lever versus short lever um, and counter movement jumps with all the players. So not just the pitchers, but then with all the players, we're having a look at their counter movement jumps. So the idea behind that was we can incorporate the counter movement jumps in the force frames, we can say are isometric and, and simple tests, or not even tests, but part of your program, so that we could then say, right, you need to hit, you know, 300 newtons of uh, external rotation. So it almost became part of their training, but we would obviously say you need to hit 300, but we'd have a look at what they're hitting. So it was a little bit of like espionage, sports science work, um, in in recording that information. Um, and then also using TrackMan. So it was trying to be, yeah, like I said, kind of like working behind the cloak and getting information where you could without them realising it. Yeah, okay. Um, are we going to the NFL experience? Yeah. Uh, which which uh, I, I came over and visited you there um, not so long ago um, and, and got a feel for uh, some of the good work you were doing there. Do you want to talk us through that and and probably some of the difficulties because for a lot of us here in australia um you know working in the nfl would seem like a dream come true and and a real sort of uh if you pardon the pun david but a real sexy experience for, for a, <laughs> uh, a sports scientist strength coach um how did you find that yeah. obviously you worked with one of the best uh... of all time in dave paloka um, but uh, yeah. other than that, dealing with the athletes and the ability to, to perhaps do your job and some of the difficulties with that rather than, you know, your standard yeah. sports science answers. Yeah, I think, um, you know, to put it in context too, I was walking in as a naive you know, 24, 25-year-old into this, into this job and I remember on my first day, I caught the plane over there and no one was there to pick me up from the airport and I was like, I'm in a different country. I didn't have a car, didn't have a phone, didn't have money. And Dave is the most lovely guy, huge frame and, and inviting person. And he's like, yeah, I'll pick you up at the airport. I'm like, okay, that's great. So I waited there for an hour and he didn't pick me up. So I caught a cab to where I was supposed to be staying. Somehow I got there, went to bed. The next morning I was told I had to be ready by 6.30 in the um, – hotel lobby and I'd get the shuttle and training was on so you know it was a baptism of fire so I was down there at 6.20 ready to go and I didn't realise I was catching the shuttle with all these players and 
ended up we had to wait for one player for 15 minutes. So eventually got to work at about 7.30 and the first lift started at 7. And my second interaction ever with Dave was him like absolutely dressing me out in front of other staff members about, you know, he's taken a gamble on me. You've come over to America. You've got to realise the position you're in. And I'm sitting there just going, what have I got myself into? And I remember going home, calling Dad, and I think I was upset. I was like, what have I done with my life? I've left my now wife, you know, back home in Australia. I've left all my family. I think Dad was about to hop on the flight and bring me home. I was that emotional. But, um, it, you know, it was such an intense culture and experience to work in. The NFL is – it will chew you up and spit you out if, you know, you've got any type of thin skin or you're not sure that you can you can handle it. It will spit you out pretty quickly. It's just the most intense environment that you can work in. Um, you've got coaches who don't see their family for – five weeks, not out of the fact that we've gone somewhere or we've travelled, it's they have a bed in their office so that they can break down film after they've finished training. So the normal day of NFL is you'll get there at 5.30 and you won't leave until about 9.30 at night. So after that 9.30, coaches will then go and work and break down film and have a look at plays and write new plays and study film. And they'll normally go to bed in their office at 3.30 and then they'll repeat it all again at 5.30. So part of the issue that I faced already was that there's this culture of intense work and constant grind. In fact, like I've got a couple of shirts from the Dolphins that just say grind, burn it out, things like that. So for someone whose whole kind of like beam was about, oh, you've got to look after, you've got to monitor, you've got to pull back, um, hmm you're going into a culture that, like, if you said, hey, this guy's a little bit tired, the head coach would look at me and go, what a pussy, we'll cut him. And sure enough, like, the way in which they deal with players and one of the challenges that sports science has over there is that while they have so much resource to invest in the athlete, what they don't have is the time. So if someone got an ACL and he was a fifth-round draft pick, they'd just cut him. They give him an injury settlement. They go, here's 40K. Thanks for coming. See you later. Um, whereas, obviously, over here, you have a look at the great stories of, like, Alex Woodford and things mm. like that, where he had, I think, four ACLs and was eventually played maybe 20 games for Hawthorne. It, it's night and day difference. So for a sports scientist, it was very hard coming in and trying to get the culture to see that you don't necessarily have to grind to the bone. It's important to grind, but um, also about when there's an appropriate time to pull off that accelerator pedal. Um, so that initially was probably one of the biggest things that, that we faced. Um, the other thing that I'd say was it was a huge challenge for a sports scientist was the drug culture. Um, because they're so heavily tested over in America, and there is a cultural use of marijuana for pain, but also because it's done culturally in certain groups. Um, that initially starting something like hydration testing was yeah. met with such resistance because the players thought, what are you doing with my wee? So we had this table set up in the, in the bathroom. So it was a huge bathroom. I was sitting next to the stalls. 
And my first job was from 5.30 till 7.30, sitting in the toilets, listening to 330-pound offensive linemen who have probably had their six servings of bacon go to the toilet and just do horrible things. Like, you know, any type of horror director would, would cringe at the thought of the smell and the sounds. And then they'd bring out this urine cup and laugh at me. But then you'd also get players who would sit there and watch me. So I'd, I'd put the pen in, I'd see what the score was, and then they would take their cup off me, tip it in the urinal, and then just tell me to F off. Um, because, once again, they were concerned about what could be used and set against them, or was this a secret way of the organisation in the NFL collecting information that could then be used for drug, you know, uh, drug testing and things like that. That sounds uh, like a fair baptism, mate. Um, uh, give us, give us uh, before we get on to your your Australia Australian experience, and and Brookie actually gets to speak on this podcast. Um, <laughs> what what uh, what was the biggest lessons you learned from over there? Um, I think the biggest lesson from a sports science, and I cringe at the word sports science sometimes, um, was it was a great lesson about identifying the area and the environment that you're working in and then understanding where you can have the biggest impact. I think sometimes people think that they need to be seen and, you know, uh, be influential in every decision that's being made. And... The experience in America taught me that some coaches will allow you, <clears throat> excuse me, to be more prevalent than others, and you can have more involvement in the bigger decisions. So, time on field, time on legs, um, you know, what type of training should it be? More of a speed based? Should it be more of a technique, tactical based type of thing? Whereas other coaches will not want any input, and then what you have to do is kind of see with the information that you're taking in. And, and in the NFL, we eventually had a great compliance rate. We had everyone doing RPEs, everyone doing wellness jumps. We had, you know, uh, gym aware. We had all these great technologies. And what we were able to do is that with our last head coach, he was um, very focused in what he would do. So we had to figure out a way that we could have some form of effect for a player in their training. And we started to realize that, all right, we didn't have as much pull in the main design, but what we could do is affect what they did in the weight room. And more importantly, what they did recovery wise. So we we were able to be less invasive to the coaches and probably a little bit more invasive with the players without the coaches being aware. And I think that is probably the most important lesson to have is, understand who you're operating with, and then identify where you can have the most impact. Yeah, I think it's uh, that first question or that first statement, understand who you're operating with. I reckon that's massive. That's a massive thing for, for us all to learn and to realise uh, constantly because I think sometimes we, we tend to want to get across what we believe before we actually uh, understand the environment that we're in and understand the audience. I think that's, that's yeah. huge. Um, 
But uh, now tell me, Australia, uh, back in the yes. in the AFL, um, yeah. How's your first season gone? What have you learned? Um, oh, how have you enjoyed? It's been terrific, obviously. Okay. Great, great employer. <laughs> compare, <laughs> compare, on, compare the. Compare the um, Compare and if you compare for me the uh, the AFL to the NFL for those uh, who might be listening internationally who don't know much about the AFL. So NFL is I would say similar to uh, rugby. For, for hopefully that can draw a little bit of comparison, but obviously the demands are fairly similar. Where it's it's explosive contact. Um, and violent a lot of the time, whereas Australian rules football, it is a lot more endurance-based. There's probably a little bit more skill-based that all players must have, whereas in the NFL, you've got specific skill-based players that have one or two nuanced skills, whereas in the AFL, it's it's a heavily skilled game based off foot and hand. So, um, you know, the two differences there have, have, have been night and day in the sense that there was a heavy focus on in the NFL looking at power, looking at strength and things like that, whereas now with Australian rules football, it's, you know, all you're kind of trying to create a holistic athlete in all facets because they need to have strength and they need to have power, but then they need to have an incredible tank to run around. So there's probably been a more heavy reliant on the GPS information for me, which, you know, I've enjoyed getting back to. Um, but yeah, it's it's also been night and day with the athletes, um, you know, and and with who you're working with, AFL athletes so far in my experience are the best to work with, in the sense that they're very compliant. You know, all athletes are great people, really, but it's just so much easier where, you know, I can say, do your wellness questionnaire, and they're almost disappointed that you had to remind them. You know, it's, it's just, you didn't do your wellness questionnaire and they're like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. Whereas normally, like I had one player who called me over and showed me a $2 million check and goes, I've got 2 million reasons why I don't need to do your wellness questionnaire, buddy. So, so okay. it's just been a and, day. Uh, Brookie, I'll hand it over to you to, to talk about uh, that further because you've, you've seen Dave in action. I have. I have been fortunate enough to see the great man in action. So, Dave, obviously you've come back into a, a pretty weird year let's face it with uh, with the lockdown and, uh, and so on I mean you know you got into pre-season and all of a sudden uh, things went pretty haywire um, t- take us through what you know how you responded to that and what you uh, how you handled the lockdown and what you did during lockdown and so on because just for yeah. those of you who, who don't know exactly what happened in the AFL uh, we got to round one basically played round one and then uh, the, the whole competition was shut down for a couple of months and basically all the staff pretty much laid off um, and uh, with no income and uh, no job. So for two months at least, um, yeah. you, were, uh, you were out of work. <laughs> yeah, so it was pretty confronting because, you know, the other thing is we, my wife and I just bought a house and we've got a little girl who is about 15 months old. So... You know, it was it was such a roller coaster. You've come back and you've got this job, and it's it's what you dream of, really, in Australia, is to, to get in the AFL and you know have a position that you're comfortable. And for the next two years, you feel quite secure. And it's you know that security in professional performance industries, it's not something that you you have a lot. And you know, I should have probably 
read the fates and, and realised that this, this feeling wouldn't last long and the pandemic came along. And, you know, um, I think it's something that moving over to America and overseas probably taught me and it was that you've just, you've got to get on and keep doing something. So I was very, very fortunate um, to pick up a job in an abattoir. So um, after the, the West Coast game and when the shutdown occurred, basically I just started reaching out to anyone and everyone that I knew and saying, look, do you have any work? Um, Melbourne were extremely, um, you know, uh, uh, Melbourne were great in the way that they looked after us. But when you hear the World Health Organisation say something that's a pandemic and talking to people, um, you know, you have a look at the Spanish flu and I think that was 1918 to 1920. So in my head, those things are going through my head about like, all right, I need to secure some form of work just in case. Um, obviously, you want things to come back. But um, basically, uh, a week later, I was working in an abattoir on the, on the boning room um, and it was... It was a fairly confronting experience. I think the first week was probably one of the most challenging weeks of my life in that you have to get up at quarter to five every morning and drive to this warehouse and it, you, you put on this white suit that's stained in blood and you're packing meat and, and you don't know for how long you'll be doing that. Um, you know, so that first week was just... It was hard. It was gut-wrenching. Um, so, yeah, that's that's eventually <laughs> that's what I was doing, and it was it was just yeah, it was it was deflating. And then you kind of find a rhythm with it. You're like, all right, you know, I'll, I'll keep doing this. This is okay. Um, but I think I was very lucky in America having that that kind of experience as well. That said, look, you just got to get on with this. Um, if I quit. America two weeks in like I was going to and dad was going to bring me home because I was a mess um, you know I wouldn't be in the position that I'm in at the moment so you can call it um, dumb faith or I don't know what you can call it but you, you got to get to a point where you're just going to say you got to keep going because you got a family to look after you got to support them and uh, you got to find a way through this um, so yeah it was it wasn't much fun, Brookie, but it was um, it was something that needed to be done. Yeah, a lot of good life experience. So um, mm-hmm. that lasted uh, a couple of months, and then uh, that yeah. the AFL sort of uh, resumed and uh, said uh, you've all got to go to Queensland and uh, <laughs> stay in a stay in a hub for uh, for a while. So uh, there you are with the wife and baby at home. Um, yeah, the club's telling you. Uh, up and uh, pack up, and we're going to Queensland. And I think they initially they said what three weeks, but three weeks has turned into yeah, it was going to be or something. And so yeah, how, when you got up there, that, you started uh, doing the maths. Yep. Yeah, yeah. When you got up there, you started doing the maths, thinking, hang on, like if they put us up in Manly for three weeks, there's eight games left, condensed season. You know, you're thinking, oh, we're going to be away for about eight weeks. So it's been spot on. So the initial conversation with Kaylee and, and my wife, I'm, I'm very, very lucky. You know, it was, you have to do it. Um, and, and sometimes you get into this industry realising that there are sacrifices that you're going to make and it's um, trying to figure out what sacrifices are worth it. And, you know, moving away from grace was probably the hardest part of it. But um, getting away, it was important to get back into a good routine with work and, and be amongst it again, I think, for my own mental health. And, um 
you know, if you, sometimes you've got to do things that are hard to do. So, you know, moving away and, and leaving Kelly and Grace was extremely difficult, but not having money and continually working in the abattoir and maybe um, sacrificing a great opportunity that I had because I, I didn't want to go, you know, I, I really didn't have the option to make that choice. So as dumb as it sounds, it was a hard choice, but it was an easy choice in the same same way. So it's been really interesting in the hub life though, you know, you're 24 seven with the people that you work with. And I think, you know, there's always teething problems and, and people have small clashes, but for the main, you know, it's, it's quite amazing the way that we've functioned up here collectively as a team, but, but more as a group, you know, some really good friendships have been formed with, with colleagues that you may not necessarily have the opportunity to interact with. And you've also seen them in different lights, which, I think has further strengthened the way that you can work with them. You start to get a better understanding about what buttons you can push and when um, in, in a joking way and then also when it's time to shut up. And, and the good thing is Dave Watts, our strength coach, you know, he just tells me now to shut up. So, you know, it's, it's been brilliant from that standpoint. But, um, yeah, I, I think we'll look back on this and, and for all the challenges it has, I think hopefully it will lead to, well, I think it will lead to a department that understands each other a little bit more because of the exposure that we've had to one another. And probably um, to, to finish off, Dave, uh, having experienced this, and if, if I just put it into context for those who are listening in, um, arguably, Melbourne through, as in Melbourne, the club, through no real fault of its own, has had one of the tougher sort of hub experiences. Um, and that's not, that's not sort of uh, um, us having a bit of a, a bit of a moan, but, but I guess through, um, through no fault of our own, we, we haven't had the luxury of a bye week. Uh, we've been to, yep. had day trips to Alice Springs. So wake up in the morning and moved up. Yeah, fly, fly, to Alice, uh, fly to Alice Springs to play a game, then fly back and then move from uh, two weeks in Sydney, then I think this is week six now in um, Maroochydore. We also had a five-day hub in Adelaide and then a five-day hub in Cairns where it was sort of plus yep. 30 degrees and, and humid and then absolutely teeming with rain and we had to... Uh, fly about five and a half hours worth of travel um, and we arrived uh, in Cairns at about two o'clock for a 4.40 game when the the opponents had been there for a few yeah. days. So that's just to contextualise it. Can you tell the audience of hopefully sports medicine, sports science practitioners, if there are anyone listening by this stage, David, um, what, uh, <laughs> what have you learned? From a purely from a let's say from a sports science and player management, uh, yeah, uh, welfare point of view. What what are the things that you've learned through this experience? I think I think the main thing I've learned that players are resilient, and I think sometimes through the rod that we've built ourselves as sports scientists is that um, we may be a little bit too cautious with players who are healthy, um, and, and I think sometimes it's a little bit of ego wanting to be involved in decisions. I think a other part of it is that we've maybe uh, taken science out of the context that it was was um, 
I can kind of establish in with, with management, things like that. And, um, but the players are resilient. You know, we had, we had two guys, Oscar McDonald and Josh Wagner, who after 48 hours of playing an AFL game, went and played a BFL game. And I think Oscar had the highest sprint distance mm. and Josh had the highest speed running. Um, so I think from that standpoint, what, what I've learned is that the players are resilient. And I think maybe one of the things in the AFL was that while we've got a fantastic culture with sports science and preparation and things like that, there's a real concern that maybe it's gone too far. And what we're starting to do is establish a crutch for players about when they can and when they can't do things. Um, and and that, that mental driver becomes a huge reason in why their performance is not where it should be and things like that, where... You know, if you have a look at all the things that have been thrown to these guys this year, you can still see that their output on the field has been incredible. So I think the one thing that I've learned is that, that perhaps we've been a little bit too soft in the way that we see the players. I think you've got elite athletes that are so robust and, and if treated the way that they should be treated, can perform You know, after a four-day break after a two-day break in the AFL instance, that, that perhaps they're more resilient than we give them some credit for. Um, yeah, I think that's the one thing I've learned. And the other thing that I always learn and continually learn is that if, you, if you're assessing yourself on injuries and the organisation's assessing you on injuries, then, you know, you, you're, you're in for a uh, pretty... Dramatic fall from grace, um, and I think we've been very fortunate with that, um, and, and we've had a great team that have supported the players throughout, and we've been extremely lucky. So, um, yeah, I think they're the two things I've learned. The players are a lot more resilient than we give them credit for, and injuries aren't the be all and end all of a performance department. Yeah, brilliant, man. I couldn't have said it better myself. Yeah, right, I'll interrupt this uh, mutual admiration society here and uh, <laughs> bring you back to reality. <laughs> Riggs, thanks for, uh, thanks for giving us your time. I, I think it's been a, a fascinating journey and a great example for any young sports scientist. I mean, you're still young. How old are you now, Riggs? Uh, 34, looking 43. 34, 34. <laughs> you've packed up, you've packed, uh, you know, going from... From you know wee bottles at Port Adelaide to uh, to the NFL to to Major League Baseball to to Melbourne to the Abattoir to the to the Hub. It's been uh, it's been a pretty eventful few years, and uh, we really appreciate you sharing your, your story with us. And uh, we look forward to the next uh, the next adventure in the life of uh, of David Regan. But uh, thanks for your time today, and uh, we'll see you all next time. Thanks for everyone. You're not-